Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that wants you to step into your labor power. Today we have Laura, Julia, and Zoe. And this week we are talking about the 9 to 5 movement with the incredible labor organizer, Ellen Bravo. Welcome. We are so happy to have you here with us. Great to be here. Thanks so much. Um, Ellen, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what, um, what you've been up to when it comes to the labor movement? So for the last um, 17 years, I've been working with lots of other people to um, figure out how to value caregiving and to recognize that we can never reach gender or racial equity if we don't revalue care. Obviously, as you know, the, this is a nation that was built on forced, unpaid care of enslaved people and indigenous people, and then low-paid, always undervalued of immigrant and other workers in the United States. Um, the work that women did in the home was never valued. And that's why it's paid so little in the when it becomes a marketplace job. And, you know, from years of working at nine to five, we knew how many women wound up on public assistance because the system was so undependable and fired them for being a good mother or for being a good child to a parent who had cancer or taking care of their own health. And we knew that uh, whether it was ending poverty and uh, other forms of injustice, we had to find a way to revalue care. And there had to be public policies that did that and then cultural expression of those policies, build a cultural change. So that's what I've been working on. We helped start a network called Family Values at Work. We're not giving them the word life and we're certainly not giving them the word family. And <laughs> we just took back that name. Um, Hell to say, yeah. What do families really need to be valued? So, yeah. And we work closely with the labor movement. We work closely with LGBTQ groups. We work closely with groups that care about ending violence against women, about ending poverty, about public health, you name it, really broad and diverse coalitions because this issue impacts everybody. And as we all learned in the last horrible 12 months, <laughs> how much, how interdependent we are and that really you're only as healthy as the person who delivers your packages, you know, uh, serves your food, um, grows it, prepares it, takes care of your aging relatives, etc. Absolutely. That's so well said. Um, and I know that you that you started to talk about this a little bit in your introduction. But could you describe for listeners who may not know, what was the 9 to 5 movement? Um, I think our listeners probably are familiar with 9 to 5, the movie um, featuring Dolly Parton, Jane Fonda, and... Lily Tomlin. Thank Lily Tomlin. you. Oh, how dare I? How dare right. I? Lily Tomlin. Um, Lily, if you're listening, we're so sorry. Lily, we love you. That is just my my brain. Um and so what, which was actually based on this movement, which I think a lot of people did not know. So right. um, yeah, if you could go into that a little bit, I think it would be really interesting for folks. So um, this great documentary is out now, which I encourage everyone to see called Nine to Five, the story of a movement that tells this story. 
um, there were some folks who were clerical workers in Boston who were outraged at how invisible they were and underpaid. I used to have this poster that said a woman's work is never done or appreciated or paid what it's worth. That really was part of what motivated them when they started. And they just started putting out, finding each other and then putting out flyers and were overwhelmed by the response. And, you know, when they asked people, um, what are the experiences you have? Over and over they heard uh, no job description, low pay, no future uh, discrimination, whether it's by gender, by race, by sexual orientation, lack of course of any flexibility for family care. And then the ridiculous petty things that clerical workers had to do. Um, Nine to Five invented a contest for this um, that took different forms over the years. Sometimes it was called the pettiest boss story. Sometimes it was, um, we in Milwaukee called it the Heartless and Full of Heart Awards. We gave them on Valentine's Day. And then in 1990, we invented the nominate your boss, the good, the bad, and the downright unbelievable. Uh. Um, and one of the things that they were clear about is that they had to build a multiracial movement and that um, people coming into power, realizing that we are the leaders we're looking for and that we needed to find that in each other and train ourselves to do it, to be the spokespeople. Um, and to build campaigns and fight for change. And that's what they were about. And I met them um, in 1982. So by that, the the movie is really about 1973 to 1981, um, 82, just at that period of time before I came on. And one of the things that happened in the 70s was they would win something, an insurance company say, and then they didn't follow through. And they thought, well, how can we make them? That you promised, you said you were going to do it. And they realized, oh, collective bargaining, that's why you have it, so that you have a contract and they can't go back on it. And so they looked to find a union, an international union that would house them, but let them run it and let them do both a, a trade union approach, but a feminist approach, uh, let it be a group led by women. Um, with an understanding of what um, what the concerns and structures needed to be to encourage women to step up. Um, and they did, SEAU um, gave them that home and they built what they called District 925. Mm. And the movie is, you know, about the um, triumph and also the complications of continuing that. So that local, except for one local in Seattle, didn't continue as such, but the organization 9 to 5 did continue and did lots of great work, expanded to be beyond clerical workers, to be really low-wage women in general, low-wage workers in general who were predominantly female, predominantly people of color, mm -hmm. and to expand the issues that they dealt with to include, um, you know, welfare reform and and certainly the issues of value and care. Amazing, thank you. Yeah, yeah, the documentary is really good. I think we all, all watched it last week. Yeah, um. I was like, <laughs> everyone go watch it right now because it's about to be taken down. 
<laughs> well, let me tell you, first of all, they're keeping it through March. Oh, good. The okay. It was good. And the response was so great. And because oh, of okay. the history month. Um, but let me tell you how I found nine to five. So, you know, I was a um, recently divorced in a new city, had to get a job to support myself. I happened to type 100 words a minute. So I knew I could Powerful. get a clerical job. And, you know, I, this was in the, um, you know, like 1974. And I knew guys who um, they would organize and then they'd have a job on the side doing construction or painting or something. They'd work a certain number of hours and to support their organizing work. So I thought, well, that's what I'll do. Except I made so little money in my clerical job. And I, I was just me. I didn't have kids yet. I thought, oh, no. This is what I should be organizing around. And so I looked for a group like 9to5 for a long time. And particularly, I knew that if the women's movement didn't get out of white university circles and really build a multiracial movement among working class women, we'd never win. There was no way about it. So I'd been looking for them. And then at the time, they moved their headquarters to Cleveland, which is where my family is, where I was brought up. And I was there once. And saw on the news a some they were giving some guy a broom for the clean up your act award and I thought oh who are these people they have they're a multiracial working class women's group and they have a sense of humor I need to find them immediately and at the time they had a structure of 10 affiliates that were all funded through the national and they didn't really have a way to expand and that changed in the early 80s and that was when I, I had remarried. I had two kids. I had no paid leave. I went back to work too soon. Um, had got a back injury as a result. Mm -hmm. Then we moved to Milwaukee, where, again, one of us needed a job with health insurance. And so I got a job at the phone company. And they told me when they hired me, you can't be sick for five years. And oh the, woman who, God. the woman who hired me actually said... I know you're going to think, how the hell am I going to do that? And I was really surprised because it was a very um, telephone company thing to say. Um, she said, you just have to. We're a public service utility and we need you here every day. We need everyone here every day, which was so stupid, as you can imagine. Oh, my God. Came to work sick, made each other sick, stayed sick longer. It was just self-defeating. And, you know, I had these two little kids who, much as I tried to train them to get sick only when it was the weekend or evening, they, be, you know, never learned and got ear infections. <laughs> how they, dare the, they? How dare they? And the phone, company, <laughs> the phone company had a policy that said, if you know you have a doctor's appointment and you it can only schedule it during working hours, you can make up that time. But if your rude child wakes up sick and has to go to the doctor, you can't make up the time because you didn't tell it in advance. And my wow. kids never told me in advance. So I, you know, I was always running up against um, brick walls there. And I really, what I was doing is biding my time till my husband got a job with health insurance so I could start something like nine to five. And then it turned out that they had changed their format and I could actually start a nine to five chapter. So I drove. 18 hours with someone you see in the movie they talk about their summer school for working women which was at Bryn Mawr in honor of the factory worker summer schools in the 1930s and um, I drove 18 hours to Bryn Mawr which was the place where in the 30s they had factory summer school for factory women and nine to five had kept brought back that tradition 
Um, at the time, 9to5 had a canvas. So people who canvassed for other organizations went to that annual meeting. And so that's who I drove with, someone who was a canvasser. And I walked in and I saw this group that was so full of um, these brilliant women speaking and leading discussions, many of whom you could tell were doing it for the first time, but were doing it really well. A group that clearly cared about multiracial unity. Um, you could tell that not well, obviously by who was in the room and also who their speakers were. And I walked away with a button that said, my consciousness is fine. It's my pay that needs raising. And I went back and started a chapter. And that's the best luck people <laughs> that I met. It was my favorite button for a long time. Um, oh, wow. And, and, and my one of the things that was so hilarious when we first started, so we were two months old. I don't know if you know this, but in uh, the fall of 1982, there was a TV show that lasted about three months called Nine to Five that was inspired by the movie and was, uh, it starred Dolly Parton's sister as Dolly Parton's role and Rita Moreno, I believe, was in it. Wow. So we had um, a viewing at a bar and we put it out to the press and this reporter came and wrote a big story about this giant photo of Dolly, Lily and Jane with Dabney Coleman, you know, as Mr. Hart. And um, about a month later, there was a union busting law firm, no, a union busting management firm who held a workshop called Nine to Five, Not Just a Movie, How to Keep Nine to Five Out of Your Office. And wow. who opens the mail? clerical workers someone opened the mail and sent it to us yes we had nothing we had no <laughs> money we had an answering a telephone with an answering machine in some other group's office uh, that was our mailing address you know we had a, a few dozen members but we had a lot of spirit so they had this workshop and we thought hmm it was way out in the boonies it was at nine o'clock in the morning so we couldn't really organize a picket line there was also one of those suburban hotels where there's no sidewalk. So there was nowhere you could stand. You'd have to stand in the, you, there was nowhere to stand. So we thought instead what we would do is send me, but I had a feeling they might know my name. I had a feeling they'd send someone to our meetings. And so I registered with my middle name and my husband's last name and um, called the reporter who had done this story and said, I'm giving you a scoop. We're going in undercover and afterwards we're having a press conference and we're going to reveal everything they say in the meeting. And um, she said, great, I so appreciate the scoop because they were a, a, an afternoon paper. This was a morning event. And so she calls me back and said, hey, um, my editor said I have to call them and get a quote. I said, don't do it. If you do it, they'll close the meeting to the press and they'll close it to the public. She said, oh, no, they'd never do that. Of course, that's exactly what they did. Right. And so they start the meeting by saying, let me tell you how powerful this nine to five group is. We've had these union free sessions for years and no one's ever called us from the press. But now, because it's them, you know, the press calls. And they said, this is why they're so dangerous. Because they combine the militancy of the trade union movement with the personal touch of the feminist movement. That's why they're so dangerous. I consider it one of my great achievements in life that I lasted through the whole seminar without 
getting up and yelling at them, <laughs> 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 blowing my cover because everything it was so right. Of course, I'm sure it was so enraging. But I, it was worth it to do the press conference afterwards and repeat what they said. It was great fun. Wow, wow. Um, I'm curious because you mentioned um, how multiracial this coalition was, and I'm wondering if there was anything specific that you did or that other organizers did to try to work towards that and make sure that it wasn't just focusing on sort of whiter, wealthier women? Um, or was it just kind of focusing on these issues that impact working class women and women of color? It was very intentional. Uh, it wasn't perfect. And you can see that from the movie. There were people like Verna Barksdale and the other leaders that who you met in that documentary who had, you know, Verna would deliberately pair a white woman and a black woman, which was what the makeup was in Atlanta, and get people talking and get people building relationships. And, you know, in, in a city like Milwaukee, you can't build a working class movement if it's not multiracial. You know, you're just literally, you'd have to leave people out. You'd have to go out of your way. The question is, what was the leadership? When did that change? That, that you know, that was a struggle. That wasn't always easy. And, um, but the, the spirit of the group and the things that you see in the documentary, people discovering what they had in common, but also, you know, the way I used to say it is you can't have, you can't be arm in arm with people unless you have each other's back. And you can't have each other's back just by saying I'm your, I'm in solidarity with you, you have to say we have this in common and these things are happening. These, in this case, racist attacks are happening and they strengthen the power that hurts all of us, but they hurt you in a way that is extreme and different and we have to take a stand against it. And I feel like that's a better description we we uh, some of us uh, came up with the term social justice feminist to describe this approach um as opposed to women's rights and you know what then became known as intersectionality and this was before that term was invented of understanding that the ruling class the powers that be uh I think Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us, is a really brilliant description of this. That yet there, there is a, a long history of um, astonishingly brutal racist attacks in this country that was a country built on the extermination of the people who were whose land it was and the total stripping of all human rights and decency toward the people who were brought here to build it. Um, but that the structures that got developed out of racism also hurt white workers. And that the, you know, she talks about how, for example, subprime loans were experimented on with black families, but the damage that was done expanded because nobody stopped it because racist, fighting racism wasn't a priority and people ignored the damage. It, the banks and the financial institutions grew fatter and bolder and went after white families as well. So we all have a stake in fighting racism, but we, it, we also have to recognize that there's compounded, that various forms of oppression join together in a way that 
makes a makes a com- much more compounded and um, different forms of oppression for certain groups of people that we have to name and oppose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think because we are recording this on International Women's Day, um, we thought it'd be nice to talk a little bit about that and the historical background, um, especially as it directly relates to working women. So the first Women's Day was celebrated by the U.S. Socialist Party in Chicago on May 3rd, 1908. Um, I really wanted to go into this history because especially today, people don't recognize that this was a like leftist working class women's holiday. Um, but it really is. So, yeah, so it was dedicated to women workers. Um, the first one, there was about 1500 people that came together to demand economic and political equality for women. The following year, there was a very similar action that took place in New York city. And then from there, this idea spread to European socialists, um, in the years to follow. But in 1910, at the International Women's Conference, um, Louise Zeitz and Clara Zetkin proposed the establishment of an annual International Women's Day. Um, and that was as a strategy to promote equal, equal rights for women within socialist movements. And this was a really big moment for leftist feminists um, because previously they just continued to be told that women's equality would only come after socialist revolution and that those issues continue to be treated as we all know like secondary issues not things that are that are emphasized um so this was like a really big moment for working class women being like no our issues are as important as working class men's on march 8th of 1911 which is also the 40th anniversary of the paris commune um, International Women's Day was celebrated for the first time. Leftist feminists around the world participated in actions, march, marches, and meetings focused on working women's struggles. It was actually an International Women's Day celebration in Russia that led to the February Revolution. Uh, working women gathered in St. Petersburg to lead a protest calling for an end of the war um, and how that was causing rising food prices and a lot of um, furthering economic inequalities. So that protest ultimately led to the forced abdication of Tsar Nicholas II, um, all from an International Women's Day protest. And then in 1922, in 1922, IWD was established as a national holiday in the Soviet Union. Um, It was also later a national holiday um, under the People's Republic of China in 1949. But then in 1975, um, the UN decided to celebrate International Women's Day, but purposefully uh, co-opted it to erase the radical roots of that. So rather than its previous history as a day of protest, the UN called it a, quote, time to reflect on progress made. Um, It became, the way they talked about it was just much more passive. It wasn't like a day for women to meet and organize. It was just like a day to appreciate what you already have. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So anyway, There's a lot more history there, but just wanted to give some of that background. And what's really Uh, exciting is that the reason they chose March 8th is that in 1908, tens of thousands of women garment workers went on strike in New York City, mm -hmm. demanding an eight-hour day and safety conditions and protections. And because that, uh, that movement won for many workers, but not lots of others, as you all know, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire happened on March 25th, 1911. March 25th is my birthday, so I always commemorate the Triangle oh my goodness. Shirtwaist Factory fire because of that. And um, 
um, and I'm sure you know that the doors were locked. The workers were not allowed to to leave because they were accused of stealing things. And so that's why so many of them perished, 146, mainly women and kids, mostly immigrants in that fire. So the fact that it was American garment workers who inspired this International Day for Women was, is something we should be very proud of and remember its connection to that fire. And also remember this. I made a, a little thing once, a quiz called Who Said That? And so this quote is from that quiz. Um, something like, uh, if we pass this law, you know, businesses will flee the city and the economy will be destroyed. <laughs> And so I give choices, you know, with the governor of your state, you know, the head of this chamber <laughs> of commerce or whatever. And it turns out it was the head of the real estate board in New York City in 1912. And what he was responding to was the changes that a commission that Frances Perkins, the first woman labor secretary, who saw the fire, you probably know that story, and was moved and got appointed to a task force to try to come up with the first set of protections for workers. And you know what they were? You had to allow inspections um, and you couldn't lock the workers in. You had to have fire escapes and you couldn't lock the workers in while they were doing their jobs. That's what he said would destroy the economy. And to this day, we hear corporate lobbyists using similar kinds of arguments against every single thing that we fight for. Um, you know, the world will end and business will flee. Um, whereas we know, in fact, that when you make work work for the people who do the essential labor that keeps our economy going, including care work, mm -hmm. um, all of us benefit. Yeah. Um, I'm curious also, you talked a little bit about sort of the ways that this legacy of racism in the U.S. has persisted and permeated through workplaces. Um, and I'm curious, in some of your other writings, I've read that you talk about this idea that harassment in the workplace stems from people's lack of power in the workplace. Um, I'm just wondering if you could talk more about that idea. Like, what do you think are the underlying causes of sexual harassment or other forms of harassment in the workplace? So clearly, the um, we've learned a lot. I think you all know that um, sexual harassment is one of the terms that didn't, didn't always exist. It was one of those things that Gloria Steinem said, we just said it was life. And then it had a name. And when, when 9 to 5 first started doing work on this, so myself, 1985, I had a good friend who was a bus driver. And she called me up and said, I need you to come and do a training for the, the union members because this one guy who was the dispatcher who, when you went in, you had to get your route for the day. And instead of showing her the book that had the, the roots, he would show her the centerfold of the Hustler magazine or some really obnoxious pornographic thing. And um, she said, I'm gonna slug him. I really need you to come in and <laughs> do something. And one of the things that we, um, so I made up this training way back then and um, they thought it was so valuable for their members that they persuaded the bus company to bring us in to train their managers and all of the employees. And so one of the very first things we talked about was sexual harassment has, is not about sex or desire. It's about humiliation and power. 
And that power doesn't have to be actual power. The guy who was the dispatcher was at the same status level that she was, but it gave him a sense of power to see her furious and um, demeaned and without a response. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many people I've met over the years who've said, oh, afterwards I thought if I had just said X, you know, then I had the perfect comeback. I'm so stupid. Why didn't I think of it? And the point is one of the ways that harassers operate is to catch you off guard and get you at a moment when you least expect it precisely so that they can enjoy the feeling of watching you feel out of control. They gain a sense of control by doing that. Obviously, when they have actual power over you because they're the boss, it's even harder because you can, you know, tell that guy where to go. Um, the problem, of course, if he's your union brother, you may not want to turn him in. That was why she called for help from us. Mm -hmm. um, but when it's your boss, the consequences, the impact it can have on your job and your future are big and you just have no idea. And especially if the company does nothing to tell you that that behavior is prohib prohibited and that they will back to have your back if you come forward and here's how to do it and here's who to go to and so on. So it's it was one of my, uh, you know, realizations over the years of doing these trainings in all kinds of work settings from a sewer district and auto plants and firefighters to, you know, corporate big, big deal offices is that it's not hard at all to get it. It's not a gray area. There may be some gray areas, but the main things are very clear. People completely understand the difference between uh, teasing and humiliation. High school kids get this. My husband and I did a curriculum. For, he was a high school teacher for the kids in his class. They they got it like that. Um, the question is what to do about it and particularly what to do about it if you don't want to be a snitch. Um, you know, that stuff is more complicated and requires building a cadre of leaders who stand up and say, this is the whole concept of not having bystanders. I don't want to work in a place where people are treated this way. Not, oh, my poor, that poor little woman needs help. I'm going to rescue her. No, myself. I don't want to work in a place of disrespect. I care about dignity for all of us, and I won't let you get away with it. That's what we really need. And I've seen it over and over when there's, uh, when you can do that work, work with the leadership, say, of a union, build that cadre of leadership, it really can transform a workplace. And, um, you know, one of the things, one of the things we did in doing those trainings was to say to uh, union members, um, when you need it, when the contract comes up, when there's a fight with management, you have to stand together and people will not do that if they don't trust you. And they're not going to trust you. Not it just if you harass, not harassing them isn't enough. If you don't find the assholes that are doing it and stop them and not let them get away with it. And when people realized, oh, they thought, well, I didn't do it. So what are you mad at me for? And we'd say, okay, you know who did what you do about it. Absolutely nothing.
Yeah, totally. Um, so you've worked on so many issues that disproportionately impact women in the workplace, like paid sick leave and paid family leave. Um, and in other interviews, I've heard you talk about the idea that these policies can also really help other marginalized folks, um, for example, queer families. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you think some of these policies can benefit specifically trans, non-binary and gender non-conforming folks? Sure. So one of the things that we've done is First of all, we talk about um, in sickness and in health, if we want couples who, however they form their families to be able to take care of each other, they need to be there in sickness as in health. And they can only do that if they're not risking their pay or their job. Right. We fight hard for an inclusive definition of family. Under the Family and Medical Leave Act, the only law that exists regarding family leave in the United States, People get up to 12 weeks unpaid leave to care for a, a new child, a parent, a, part, a, a married spouse, or their own illness. Siblings aren't family under the Family and Medical Leave Act. Grandparents aren't family. And certainly an, a person who's related by blood or affin affinity is not considered family. And so we've... Wendy Chen Hoon, who I'm proud to say is now the director of the Women's Bureau of the Department of Labor. Um, I worked for years to get her to come to Family Values at Work, and she did, and she became the co-director, and then she became the executive director, and then got stolen from us, um, <laughs> plucked to be the head of the Women's Bureau. She recognized that her own family was not going to be covered by the laws that we were passing, and so she helped start a family justice network that talked about family for LGBTQ families, but also immigrant families and many other groups that have extended families, and that we need to use a definition that, guess what, already exists in the federal workforce, defining family as people who are related by blood or affinity. As Pat Schroeder said, you know, 25 years ago, um, family is people who love and care for each other and make a commitment to each other. That's what family is. It's not up to any of us to tell anybody else who their family is. And particularly though, we try to educate people about what does it mean if your birth family may not, may not be there for you and other people stepped up and they are. Those are the people that you care for. Those are the people that need to care for you. So I'm proud to tell you that we've won that definition in um, a dozen or more paid sick days laws and now it's become the standard for our paid leave laws and we're working hard to get it to be the definition in the federal paid leave program that we're working to pass. Very cool. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And you know what, in the process, people have learned a lot about discrimination against trans and non gender nonconforming individuals that they just didn't realize existed and didn't understand. And just like Verna Barksdale inviting white and black people to come to the meeting together, sit next to each other, when people play, when people pick it together, when they make decisions together, and when their kids go to a potluck together, it stops being a, an abstract solidarity issue and it starts being about people you really care about and you suddenly see what you hadn't seen before forms of oppression they're experiencing and you want to make them stop because you care about those people 
And now you also have done some political education and you realize that what weakens, what harms them, strengthens the people who also harm you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I guess. Um, well, so I remember reading that they were going to do a nine to five reboot reboot and then decided not to because they said like not enough has changed for women in the workplace we don't know how to make the script different enough um which of course you've been working on this and you've told us several things that have changed so I wanted to ask you of course what you think of the notion that nothing has changed but also like what are the major changes that you've seen or um yeah other like things that you're really proud of from all the organizing you've done well that many many people have done so First of all, there are, um, think about the, the power of the, um, one of the powers of our movement is what, what you're seeing happening to Governor Cuomo right now. Uh, you can't get away with it. It doesn't mean he won't, and it doesn't mean um, there aren't lots of people getting away with it all the time. One of them was in the White House for a few years. Um, but the standard has changed the what's acceptable has changed and there are many more people now who know their rights and know how to exercise their rights uh, i remember in you know the clarence thomas hearings we had 95 had an 800 number that was set up for something else but we got 2000 calls in the week after those hearings from women who'd been sexually harassed most of them just needed to tell somebody they'd never told the story before. Maybe seven years later, there was a column in Dear Abby about a teenager who was being harassed by her boss. And her mother thought it was a really good job and didn't she didn't know how to quit because her parents would be disappointed, but she didn't know how to tell them. And Abby's answer forgot to mention that it, what was happening was illegal and that there was something she could do about it. So we had another spur, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people calling that hotline. This time they knew it was illegal, whereas before they had, the first time they had, had no idea before the Clarence Thomas hearing. They knew it was illegal and they even knew who, what to do. The problem was they couldn't get it to stop. So that's still true that there are lots of people who are having trouble getting it to stop, but now there's a time's up movement. There's a lot more help and support for people who are being harassed. On the issue of paid leave, we've won paid sick days 53 times. Mm. And many of those are cities that are now in a state that has a paid leave program. We've won paid family and medical leave in 10 states. We count D.C. as a state. Um, and we've paved the way for federal standards. We're, it's going to be a fight. It won't be easy. But this is the year we may be able to do that. Child care, which, you know, for years, decades, just got forgotten about. There's a new budding, thriving movement that's doing like family values at work, bringing people together and saying, let's work in partnership and figure out the models, build the momentum, build the movement for the power we need to make that change. I feel like the uh, understanding of the harm that racism caused is exponentially higher than it was. 30 years ago, the, the, there's still a lot, I think, of work to do to get people, white people, not to be scared of thinking this is only about guilt or what you give up and understanding what they have to gain from a multiracial movement and 
from ending racism. So I, th I think there's lots of work to do on every front, but yeah, there's been progress and mostly it's been about building movement and people coming into a sense of their own power and saying, I don't want this ever to happen again to me and I don't want it to happen to anybody else. What I can't do on my own, I now see I can do if we work together. Collectively, we have power we didn't have. And I can't tell you how many times my great joy is the moment that people get that recognition and the words they use to describe their joy and their pride in being part of a people's movement. Amazing. Well, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to us. It was really incredible to listen to everything you had to share with us. Um, is there anything else you wanted to share before we we let you go to your next Zoom meeting? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm happy to have people go to our website, familyvaluesatwork.org or paidleaveforall.org and see ways they can plug in to this Perfect. fight for paid leave to make sure that what gets passed is inclusive and effective and reaches everyone. That means that it has to be affordable. It has to guarantee that you're not going to lose your job for taking the time to be there for the ones you love and that family is indeed inclusive and looks like real families in the U.S. today. Thank you all for the work that you do. Yay. Such a joy to meet you. I appreciate it so much. Yay. You too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, and also I wrote a novel. I wrote a novel that was published in 2015 called Again and Again. It's about date rape and politics. It's actually the story of Brett Kavanaugh that I wrote it three years earlier. And mine has a better ending. And I'm in the, I'm finishing a book of short stories called Standing Up, Tales of Struggle that are all based on organizing and people learning to stand up for themselves. When I find out anything about it getting published, I'll let you know. Yes, please. please yeah. Do. Yeah. Have a great rest of your evening. Thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Take good care. Bye. Bye. Well, thank you for listening. That was our interview with Ellen Bravo. What an inspiring woman. Powerful. Thank you, <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> yes, thank you, Sarah Jaffe, for putting us in touch. Um, <laughs> yeah, and if you enjoyed this interview, you can give us your money at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. You can also rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. You can do the follow thing on Spotify. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and now TikTok oh, <laughs> at oh, yes. Season of the Bee. Um, also, if you were interested when we were talking about like the history of International Women's Day and Ellen was talking about um, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire and all of those things, we have a whole episode on that called Women in the Labor Movement that came out, I think. Not last year, but the Labor Day before that. Um, you'll find, you can Google it. You'll find it. Oh, come up. Trust me. Scroll back through our SoundCloud, <laughs> you know. <laughs> exactly. Amazing. And yeah, I think that's everything. Love you. Love you. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.